Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, December 12th, the Do You Have This in Your Medicine Cabinet edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is nine and a half, and we live in Los Angeles. I'm Zach Rosen. I make the Best Advice Show podcast, and I live in Detroit with my family. My oldest, Noah, is five, and my youngest, Ami, is two. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom of three littles, Henry, who's 10, Oliver, who's eight, and Teddy, who's six. And we live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We have a special twofer for you today. We're going to answer a listener question asking if it's a problem that the family's primary friends don't go to the same school. But first, we've got a very special visitor. Dan Quise is here to talk about his powerful Slate piece all about Narcan and why parents of teens should have it in your homes. We're going to take a quick break and Dan is going to join us when we come back. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks, everyone. We who are still at Mom and Dad are Fighting like to think that the advice we give will have some impact on our listeners' lives, but the advice that you're back here to give might actually be some of the most consequential advice that we've ever been able to offer. You recently wrote a piece called Parents, You Need Narcan for Slate. Can you tell us how this piece came to be? Yeah, this past summer, I was um, at a little street fair in Arlington, and I noticed that at one table at the fair, there was this guy with, like, one of those CPR dummies and uh, what appeared to just be, like, a bunch of packets of medication. I came up a little closer and realized that he was a county volunteer, a guy named Jim Dooley, and he was performing Narcan training. He was training anyone who wanted to at this street fair on a random Sunday in Arlington on how to use Narcan, the anti-opioid overdose drug that I had sort of heard a lot about but didn't really know that much about. And I had just, maybe a few days before the street fair, I had read one of those many, many horror stories that are in the press everywhere. This particular one was in the New York Times, a story about teenagers you know, buying a single pill on Snapchat, thinking that it's Adderall, taking it and learning only too late that it's pure fentanyl when they drop dead in their driveway. I'd been talking about this story with a lot of parent friends and just generally panicking about, you know, God, there here is a, something that is a new way to worry about an age-old worry, which is the drug overdose. But now there's a sort of new variety of it that I hadn't even really thought about or thought to worry about. And now here was this guy at the street fair who was willing in 10 minutes to train me to use a medication that would save anyone who fell victim to an opioid overdose, whether it was a person who was drug dependent or whether it was a person like one of my teens who just took one pill that they did not know had an opioid in it. And the more I learned about this, not only how effective and safe the drug was, but also how invested my county is in getting it to people in using volunteers like Jim and a huge number of full-time staffers to get citizens trained in Narcan and to give them free boxes of it. 
that had just never dawned on me before that that was an, an option for me, a parent of teenagers. And then I realized, well, it's crazy that everyone doesn't know that it is an option for parents of teenagers. And the more that I talked to parents in my friend group, the more I got the response from them, oh, I didn't know anything about that. And so I wanted to write a piece that would basically tell parents of teenagers, you should have this drug in your house, this medicine should be in your house, and probably your city, state, or county will give it to you for free. The thing that was surprising to me is just how deceptively simple it is to administer. I mean, you said Jim Dooley's training's last 10 minutes because it is so profoundly simple, right, Dan? Yeah. uh, You know, one of the people I talked to, uh, a woman who runs a foundation named for her brother who uh, died of an opioid overdose, they're really, truly a wild number of foundations out there named for relatives who died of opioid overdoses. Um, It's the kind of thing that really spurs surviving family members into action. One thing she told me was, you know, people for a long time, the, the view people had of saving someone from an overdose came straight out of Pulp Fiction. It was you have a big syringe mm-hmm. full of adrenaline and you have to shoot it right into Uma Thurman's heart. But that is not how Narcan works in the mode that you are most likely to encounter in the wild. It is a nasal spray. It's like Afrin. If you can use Afrin, you can use Narcan. You simply put it in someone's nose, you squeeze it once, and that is it. If they are suffering from an opioid overdose, you have saved their life. I guess I'm curious why... Up to this point, we don't all know about it and have it in our home, right? Like, I have stuff in my home for all kinds of emergencies that I hope to never encounter. So why isn't this in my first aid kit now? There's sort of two sides to that question. The first side is the side effect part. Yeah, There aren't really side effects to Narcan. Uh, Used in basically any situation in which a person is unresponsive, whether because they're overdosing on opioids or not, If you give them Narcan, you'll either save their life or it'll have no effect on them whatsoever. The only thing that Narcan does is it blocks opioids from depressing your respiratory response. It literally does nothing else. So you can't do any harm to anyone by giving them Narcan if they're in a crisis. Obviously, in a crisis situation, you should also do some other things. And Narcan training will go over these. You should call 911. You should make sure that they're in a comfortable and safe space. You should make sure they're not suffering from a bleeding head wound or a broken neck or something like that. But in general, the lesson that I learned from my Narcan training and that I heard over and over again was there is no way to harm someone really by giving them Narcan if they are like totally unresponsive, like you pinch them really hard on their ear and they don't do anything at all. If you give them Narcan, best case scenario, you save their life. The only bad thing that can happen is that you don't yet save their life. And then to the larger question, which I think is maybe more interesting and important, there's an enormous amount of stigma around drug overdoses, around the opioid epidemic, and around drugs in general. And so in the same way that for a long time, probably many of us got sex ed lessons that were all about abstinence or parents would hear things like, well, if you have condoms around the house, you're just going to encourage your kids to have sex. I think for a lot of people, there was this maybe subconscious, maybe conscious feeling that, oh, if I have this thing around my house that saves people from overdoses, uh, isn't that just going to encourage drug use in my home? Or 
on a grander scale, if society makes available this thing that can save people from drug overdoses, isn't that just going to increase and encourage drug addiction? And one of the great lessons of writing this piece and reporting this piece is the way in which drug policy pretty much everywhere in the country, even in the reddest of states, has totally moved away from abstinence and prevention as their modes of operation. The mode of operation now is harm reduction. It is, there are these problems in society. There are a lot of ways that society as a whole could start to address them, and hopefully it will, but people are going to overdose on opioids. Drug addicts and drug users are going to overdose on them. People who've never used drugs before in their lives are going to overdose on them. Children who find pills that a grandparent drops on the carpet are going to overdose on them. And so the best Thing we can do right now is have harm reduction tools as available as possible. That's why in my city, Arlington, in every library right next to the defibrillator, there's a box of Narcan. That's why most schools, middle and high schools in Arlington now have boxes of Narcan available that, and a lot of teachers and administrators who've been trained to use them. And so, Elizabeth, I'm really encouraging people in this piece to think of Narcan as basically the same as the fire extinguisher or the other things that you would have in your house to deal with emergencies. You wear a seatbelt in your car, as one person told me, that doesn't make you say, great, now I can get in a car accident. You have Narcan in your house. That does not make anyone want to have an overdose, but it means if someone has one, you could save them. Dan, do you think everyone needs to have it, or is this like when your kid's become teens? Is this like, or just like all of us should have Narcan in our homes? If you talk to anyone pretty much who works in drug policy or prevention, they'll tell you that their version of an America that's doing the most it can to save lives is one in which pretty much everyone has Narcan in their purse or their bag or and or their house. We're a long way from that. The point of this piece was to deliver this message straight to parents of teens who right now are getting an enormous amount of news in their eyeballs about this sort of new wave of the opioid epidemic, the single pill can kill wave, uh, which is affecting teens in a way that teens had not been affected quite as much by the opioid epidemic before. Deaths by fentanyl among teens quadrupled between 2019 and 2021. And that is primarily because of this specific aspect of the opioid epidemic. And it's worth noting that Narcan, you know, as a product was really unfamiliar to me, but that to a large extent has to do with my particular position of privilege and my community's position of privilege. If you live in some place where the opioid epidemic has been raging for 10 or 15 years, you know, there, there are towns in Tennessee and in Ohio where they train kindergartners in Narcan use and hand them out to everyone because it's so widely recognized a harm reduction tool and it's so safe to use that counties and cities have decided, well, this is a good way to start trying to address this problem. Dan, what are the conversations like with your teens about opioid use? I, are you telling them essentially the same things that you're telling us in this article in the same language? How do you talk about this with very young people? I talk about Narcan and have talked about it with them. Harper, in fact, had already been trained when I started this article because of a, like a teen extracurricular organization she's in called the Teen Network Board. 
I actually did not know that was happening. And then I told her I was writing this piece and she's like, oh yeah, I know all about that, dad. Lyra, I'm encouraging her to get trained soon and to bring Narcan around with her. But there's also a different set of conversations that I'm having with them, you know, which is tricky from the perspective of a parent who has always, uh, our messaging in our family on drugs has been very different than the messaging that I received when I was a kid. And it has been for a long time, much less about don't ever do drugs and much more about, well, there are certain situations and certain classes of drugs that we don't care about that much. And there are other things that we want you to be really careful about moving away from that over the last year into a, like, I don't really care if you share someone's joint, but do not ever under any circumstances, take a pill from anyone else for any reason has been hard and figuring out how to message that in a way that might make an impact has been hard. They're getting that message a lot in school and in, for example, Harper's extracurricular, they've seen those stories and I think they get it, but it is still a little bit weird and hard. And I think hard for a lot of parents who had just been adjusting to a kind of new world in which you might talk about pot with your kids differently than you talk about harder drugs or even really alcohol. And now there's this, what feels to us like a brand new threat and it feels sort of like the ultimate threat, where a child who shows no particular signs of drug dependency or even drug use makes one mistake mm. and is dead. Mm. Though I've got to say, it does give me some hope that perhaps this next generation is going to be able to think with more nuance than, than ours or the generation before by having these conversations. Like two things can be true at once. You can have fun smoking pot and you can be, you know, incredibly aware of this other threat and proceed accordingly without having to, you know, comply with these blanket statements of don't do drugs. And so the fact that you're having those nuanced, complex conversations with your kids, I find encouraging. And the fact that there's this tool that can, I think, give them a certain sense of empowerment over the situation that they find themselves in out in public, not even necessarily having to do with them so much, but with friends mm -hmm. out in the world who they might be worried for. You know, when Lyra goes off to college, I'm definitely going to be making sure that she has Narcan in her bag and in her dorm room. Um, and knowing that that's there, I think feels very empowering to people who hold that medication, particularly in the context of an epidemic that for 15 years in America has felt disempowering, has made people feel helpless. It is very heartening to know that there is a tool, one tool that is literally described by everyone who deals with it as a miracle. It's really interesting that in this regard, we need our children to have fear. And we spend mm -hmm. so much time trying to protect our children from fear, you know, and making them brave and bold and fearless, you know, but like the, they have to be afraid of opioids, you know, to protect themselves. It's 
Also interesting to me that I think about how drug dealers were portrayed to kids growing up around my time, you know, and like that one, just this idea that they were going to be selling to very, very young children, you know, seven year olds and eight year olds. And then if they got you hooked on weed, then you were absolutely ruined for life and you were going to die, you know, and like now the drug dealer is as scary as they once portrayed him to be. Right, and he takes a lot of much more familiar, less obviously identifiable forms. He is, in some ways, he's your friend who sits next to you in class, who when you need an Adderall is like, here, just take one of my pills. And that's a different class of fear and worry for us and for kids. And it makes me a little bit crazy thinking about all these new situations that kids now have to navigate But it also makes me feel like, well, there are some circumstances in life where a little bit of healthy fear is probably the right way to go. And you're right, Jamila, that so much of parenting, especially in the early years, is about teaching kids to like feel fearless and feel supported and backed up. And it's a a new kind of experience to be teaching fear in ways that make me a little uncomfortable are just starting to agitate for that. And that's another way that kids get the chance to use this as a way to advocate for themselves and for their own safety. I did just Google like Colorado and Narcan and there's like how to get it here and how to get trained is there. So I'm assuming anyone who's listening to this and wants to figure it out, just just Google your city or state and Narcan. And yeah, basically. So pretty much every state in the union has passed either emergency use authorization or other legislation. That means that you don't need a prescription to get Narcan in some places. It's easier to get it than in others. There are plenty of pharmacists out there in the world who still don't know that or who are very judgy and who might not fill your request without a prescription, but many, 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 in fact, I would not hesitate at this point to say most public health departments have programs to get Narcan into the hands of their residents. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. This was very informative. Again, parents, you need Narcan will be in the show notes. And uh, on a different note, hopefully you'll be back before then. But if not, we'd be remiss not to mention that your debut novel, Vintage Contemporaries, is coming out in early January. Can you tell us a little bit about it before you go? Thank you for not being remiss. (laughs) It comes out January 17th. It's a novel about parenting and friendship and broken friendships and feeling frustrated about parenting. And also it's about loving books, music, and art uh, and trying to figure out what that means to you when you're a young person and a slightly older person. Well, I'm reading it now and I'm really enjoying it. So congratulations to you. Yes, Dan. It's always a pleasure to have you back on the show. We're going to take a quick break and do a little advice and some recommendations before we get out of here. All right, we're back and we're ready to hear our listener question. Dear mom and dad, do you think it matters if your primary family friends come from outside your kid's school? My first grader seems to get along fine with his classmates and I am friendly enough with the moms. We wave in the car line, group messages about school stuff and make small talk at birthday parties. But our friends, the people we hang out with within our precious free time are primarily from preschool. Other school families gather two or three at a time on weekends and during school breaks. We haven't been invited and I don't really care. 
We have a full and happy life and are thrilled to say we finally have great friendships after a tough year plus of COVID isolation. But as the kids get older, I wonder if we are missing our chance to forge strong relationships at our school, both for our child and for us. What do you think? Thanks, family friends. I'm curious if our letter writer is just having some FOMO. Like, are they just scared they're missing out on stuff? Because to me, it sounds like you have great friends. You have very Mm -hmm. normal relationships with other people (laughs) in the class. You're not getting left out of stuff. Your child is being invited to birthday parties. You are participating how you want, right? You only have so much time and you have good friends. I, I think any concern about your kids is just checking in and making sure that they're not asking you, like, hey, can we have so-and-so over? And you're like, no, because we're doing something with these other people, right? Everyone should be friends with, I think, who they feel that connection with. And that is going to change. Like, eventually, your children will drive more of your friendships or the school friendships will become more important. I don't know. Maybe this is the homeschooler in me. I think, like, as long as you don't feel left out of the school stuff, you're you're good, <laughs> Yeah, don't overthink it. I mean, it sounds like yeah, your life is, is good. Um, you don't really care. You say it yourself. You have a full and happy life. Don't overcomplicate this. And I think an added benefit of your kids being friends with uh, kids from from not their school is, remember, we actually, this was on Slate Plus a couple weeks ago. We were talking about this notion of child lore and how stories spread and the kind of organic ways in which kids learn new things and activities and games. One of the, one of the ways that these things spread um, is like by getting a tip from a kid from another school. So your kid being friends with kids from another school, they're going to get like, they're going to like find out about like the movie or the book or the album or the game and be like the source material for spreading it in their new school. So I think it's kind of given them a little like exotic vibe, like, Ooh, <laughs> Who 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 have you been hanging out with? Let me get in on that tip. So, I think I think you're fine. You know, I think the only thing you might want to be mindful of is that your child doesn't feel, oh, I don't need to be cool with these people at my school because I've got my friends. You know, like as long as they're able to maintain healthy school friendships and like sometimes school friendships don't really last past three o'clock. You know, like when we're there, we talk, we share pencils, we have a good old time, but we don't really, you know, feel compelled to get on the phone. Also, you have a first grader, so your kids aren't really getting on the phone or doing too much, you know, organizing of themselves outside of school yet anyway. But Mm -hmm. as they get older, they will start to, you know, likely increase the number of people that they want to be around and start requesting time with other kids, you know, or being invited to other birthday parties. And that's fine, too. But I think all that matters is that you have friends like that is just such a blessing. When I um, talk to the moms from the mom hour about friendships, they have older kids and one of the things they said was harder is kind of this idea that like your kids start to make their own friends. And if your friends Mm -hmm. have always just been the parents of your current kids, you know, like school friends, that then all of a sudden you enter this zone where you don't have any friends. Like, you you know, they don't really want the other parents don't need to be your friend because the kids start to become um, able to handle a lot of that on their own. So I think nurture these friendships that you do have. I'm just curious why they like, like it's a, I think it's a really good question, like on a kind of philosophical level, but I'm like, I always wonder like, where was their heart at? Like, are they thinking 
that they're missing out on something. And I, I think it is okay to just know that you're always missing out on something. Like you can't be at everything and you can't yeah. be friends with everyone. Yeah. You can't say yes to everything. But maybe like you're saying, Elizabeth, maybe you should uh, examine the question underneath this question. What didn't you put in this, yeah. in this letter? Because that might lead to whatever is driving you to, to wonder. Yeah, like did you this. just say no to something that you felt you should have said yes to? Right. Like, I'm. that's what mm-hmm. I'm wondering. Like, did they just turn down some kind of invitation to do something with their friends? And now they're like second guessing. <laughs> it's like a whole other letter. I'm like, what could have just happened? Yeah. Well, you let um, us know. Yeah. 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 Tell us what you didn't write. <laughs> What's the missing piece? We would love to know. Uh, family, friends, please keep in touch. Tell us the other part of the story. Everyone else, if you have some advice to offer, send us a voice memo or email us at momanddadislate.com. That's also where you can send us any questions of your own. It's finally time for recommendations. Zach, what are you recommending? I'm recommending a book this week that wasn't written for kids, but I think it totally could be. And this might be a, a fun family activity, depending on uh, how old your kid is. Uh, it's a book called You Need a Manifesto by the designer Charlotte Burgess Auburn. I interviewed her for my best advice show. And basically, this is like a how-to book, um, really beautifully illustrated and designed about how to collect, curate, and craft your own manifesto that you can use as an everyday tool for making decisions and taking action. So it's not like you know, I just think of like the communist manifesto when I think of manifestos. That's the, <laughs> Unroll that's like the, your scroll. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. It's rather like think about the stuff that really matters to you. If you're just like thinking about this from a family perspective, um, like think about like the the parenting writing that inspires you. So kind of like gather the the, the thoughts and like best practices that you're drawn to um, and, and jot them down because you're going to face instances and challenges in your work life or your family life where you're like at this crossroads and you're like wait what should i do here but if you have this manifesto it's like wait i know what i believe you know Mm -hmm. i I wrote it down right here and so it's this really it seems like grandiose but i think i find it really practical and i've been thinking about it a lot uh since i first heard about it so you can check the book out um you know from your library or, or 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 buy it but just the spirit of like what the heck is it that you believe and why and then just like make like a fun art project out of it like write it down illustrate it uh do decoupage or collage or whatever but just like have it have it handy um and have your if you know i think this would be fun for teenagers too um and you could kind of have your own um individual manifestos or your family manifesto it just seems like a very generative exercise to me i never thought of calling it a manifesto but we basically do this each the start of each school year for our homeschool to like sit down, but for exactly that purpose to say like, as things come up, why are we doing the schooling that we're doing this year? And Mm -hmm. then I can kind of judge every decision that we're making curriculums or changing pace or, you know, abandoning things against this (laughs) manifesto. I've just never thought to, to call it that like against these words of what is our purpose this year? Right. I think that's lovely. It's very cool. 
Uh, Elizabeth, what are you recommending? Okay, I am recommending The Cinnamon Bear, which is actually an old radio program from 1937. It was designed to be listened to six days a week from Thanksgiving to Christmas. It's essentially a brother and a sister go on this adventure with this magical bear to this magical land to find this silver tree star uh, that has been stolen. The version from 1937 was actually available uh, as an audiobook through our library on Libby. Each episode is like 10 minutes or so. The kids in the 1937 version are very like idyllic and just naive. The kids in this version are like sarcastic. It's packed full of like cultural references. They're Hmm. very skeptical of everyone they've encountered. Um, Each of the people they meet is voiced by a famous actor. We have not been able to stick to the one episode a day. We are way ahead. The kids are like more cinnamon bear, more cinnamon bear, but it's a very, very cute tale. It is definitely radio story format. So lots of like, you hear lots of stuff from Foley artists and the kids have been really into now getting uh, the recorders on their um, iPads and like seeing how you can make noises and do different voices. It's been just a really cool cool experience. So it's called The Cinnamon Bear. Uh, Again, the old version I was able to find on the Libby app through my library um, and the new version is on Audible. That is very cool. Jamila, what what about about you? you? So, we all want to know. <laughs> Everyone wants to know. Um, I'm recommending that you pre order Dan's book, Vintage Contemporaries. Oh. It means so much to an author to get pre orders for your book. Um, so, it'd be really awesome for him. And it's a lovely read. I'm about halfway through it. I was able to start it on my vacation um, in New York. And yes, give Dan Kois, aka Dan Qua, Give him a chance. Give him check out his second book. <laughs> Give him a chance. Give him a chance. Why not? I love pre-ordering stuff and then like forgetting that I ordered it. <laughs> Me it's like too. A, yes, it's the best. No, you're we'll like, oh, a book. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a gift to yourself. It is it's a gift to yourself in <laughs> the future. Self. Yeah. <laughs> Give your future self a gift. That's and order Dan's book. <laughs> I love this. All right. Well, that is our show. This episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson and Christy Taiwo Macanjula. For Dan Coyce, Zach Rosen, and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Jamila Lemieux. Thank you for listening.